I said we'll spare the big introduction just because we're a little bit maybe tight on time. We used it up singing happy anniversary. <laughs> no, I know sometimes we, uh, you know, preaching in a typical Baptist church sometimes feels kind of like you're in a relay race and you're the the last leg and someone's handing you the baton saying, now we're really behind, but if you could make up for it, that would really be a big help. <laughs> Say, we're, uh, we're Bible-believing Baptists. We like good preaching. We appreciate short preaching. And we love good short preaching. <laughs> Take your Bible to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Feel a little bit like the... You ever sitting on a flight, and you got delayed at the gate, and the pilot comes on and says, we'll try to make up some time in the air. Well, <laughs> we'll try to make up a little time in the air. pastor said to keep it under an hour, but pretty sure I'd be preaching to myself about an hour from now. Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. Open with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and, Lord, the opportunity to gather together and pray, Lord, your blessings on uh, this time in your word now for these next few moments. Thank you for all that we've enjoyed already today. And we pray, Lord, that the word of God uh, would have its will and way in our hearts and minds this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Flip over to Mark 15. Mark 15. Mark 15 and verse 27. And with him they crucify two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And then jump over to Luke 23. Luke 23. Some of you probably see where this is going already. Luke 23 and verse 33. Luke twenty two thirty three, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on his right hand and the other on the left. Now we'll read a verse in John in a moment, but interesting that word Calvary that shows up right there. That if unless you have a King James Bible, possibly a new King James, I'm not sure, you don't even see that word in there. And so you have this account of Jesus being crucified between two thieves. It shows up in all four of the Gospels. But in Luke's Gospel, the word for skull, it's Golgotha in the Hebrew. uh, And there's the Greek word uh, cranion, which you might think of as your your cranium, right? Your, Your head, the word skull. It's the same word in all four Gospels. But for some reason, God had them translate it Calvary in Luke. And isn't it interesting that that word, which it really doesn't have any other context. In fact, I just looked it up online just for out of interest. Just search for that word on Google. Everything that comes up. I mean, there's, you know, thousands and thousands of references. It all points to this. Now, it might be Calvary Baptist Church, Calvary Christian School, this, that, and the other, the mountain on which Christ was crucified. But there really isn't any other context for it. You think of all the stuff that seems so great and so grand throughout history that is just forgotten, like so much sand that's been blown away. And yet this one little word 
that appears only one time in a story that's related four times in the scripture in the King James Bible has persisted all this time. We sing about it. It's in all of our songs. I can't help but laugh a little bit to think how many preachers are standing behind pulpits this morning preaching about Calvary after they just sang about Calvary and their Bible doesn't even contain the word Calvary. Interesting. Interesting. Go over to John 19. John 19. One might get the impression that God is trying to draw a certain attention to this fact of history. And he just threw that little twist in there that's persisted to this day. Burdens are lifted at Golgotha. Eh, It doesn't quite have the same ring to it. John 19, verse 18, says, Where they crucified him, and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. He's emphasized this story four different times, and God seems to draw out in the scripture the fact that one is on the left, and one is on the right, and Jesus is in the middle. I mean, the picture can't be any clearer. The cross is in so many ways the the focal point of history. I, I again, get a laugh when people use this, you know, BCE to refer to the the date. And I always ask them what it refers to, even though, of course, I know what they mean by it. Just to get them to admit, I say, well, what is it? How do I know what that is? Well, you know, it's from the time of Christ. Right. So why do we even bother coming up with a new term for it? Christ is still the the standard, if you will. But it does make me ask and wonder why three crosses? As completely monumental in history as the cross of Calvary is, as important as it is in the plan of God. And the Bible says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. It seems almost like, why would God share that moment with any other people on the Mount of Calvary? Why would he? Not only is he not going to share his glory with another, but Colossians says this, and having spoiled principalities and powers, and this, the previous verse talks, is the reference to the cross, he said he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. If we were to put that in the vernacular, it's like saying the work that Christ did on the cross was as if to say, in your face, God wins. Even when everything seemed to be pointing to his defeat, when he's in agony and suffering and the devil and the world think they finally got him where they want him, God says, I'm just going to make an open display of my triumph over all your plans. Why would he share that moment? What is the picture he's trying to make? He not only shares it, but in every gospel, he makes a point of mentioning that there's one thief on his right and one thief on his left and Jesus in the midst of them. God always has a way, doesn't he? He's always making a way for people, for mankind when they fail. Whether it's Adam or Rahab or the children of Israel or a woman at a well or men that are blind, or deaf, or dumb, 
or in some cases even dead. God's always providing a way. So it does make sense that even in his, his pinnacle of triumph, there would be mankind at his side and God painting that picture for us. The cross is the sum and summation of all that man has done against God and all that God has done for man. All right there in that simple, simple image. What an incredible view into the nature and the character of God Almighty in that moment. And we see its effect on several others throughout this passage. You've got the the condemned criminals, of course. They have a number of similarities. Uh, They're both condemned. Bible tells us that, plainly. Uh, They both deserve their sentences. They're getting what they have coming to them, as it were. Some people say, well, I just want what's coming to me. I want what I deserve. Well, you need to be careful with that kind of thinking. Uh, In Ezra, he says that God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. We don't want what we deserve. We don't. Both were aware of who Christ was, who he claimed to be. And were in that sense without excuse. Yet they both participated at the beginning with the crowd in mocking Jesus Christ. Bible says in two different locations. They they joined in railing against this man, Jesus Christ. But we also find out that they weren't entirely the same. For one, as the Bible points out very vividly, they were not both on one side of Jesus Christ. They're on opposite sides of him. And so were their hearts and minds. God loves to paint pictures with words. And I think that picture is quite vivid. One accepted his punishment as just and believed that Christ's punishment was unjust. One repented and trusted Christ, said, remember me when thou comest to thy kingdom. And Jesus confirmed what this man just believed and confessed. There's others in this story. Go back to Matthew 27. The effect of Jesus' work on the cross is so far-reaching. Matthew 27, verse 32. And as they came out, this is leading Jesus uh, up Calvary. As they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And him they compelled to bear his cross. Well, it's interesting that at the same time that those who said they were his followers and should be closest to him, who might have helped him in his hour of of suffering, here's this stranger, by all accounts, who's compelled to help carry the cross of Christ. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about this man or the story, but can you imagine being the one person, humanly, that actually helped Christ carry his cross? Incredible. Now, Jesus said, no, no, don't worry. You do have a cross to carry. And we are to take up our cross and follow him, are we not? And would to God that we might be willing to bear our cross for him as he was willing to bear our sin on that cross for us. You know, this man, he has a very common name. 
He's coming from somewhere in the, in the southwest up to Jerusalem, which was also very common for that day. And here he's seemingly sort of grabbed out of the crowd and pressed into service to carry the cross of Christ, to help him bear it. He's kind of a, represented as sort of an any man or an every man from the scripture. And, you know, one day each of us is going to have to deal with the cross. You're going to have to come to a place of decision about the cross of Christ. It's also interesting how our service, our, what we do with Christ and the cross will affect other people. And sometimes that's some of the hardest decisions to make, whether you're deciding to maybe leave for the mission field or maybe you're just in a a family that doesn't believe like you believe. My heart goes out perhaps the most to young people who get saved and you can just tell they've got a desire to serve God and they have parents and family that just want nothing to do with it. It's one thing when it's an adult. I mean, I know a little something about what that feels like, but when it's a child... And now they're having to wrestle between what they know God's put in their heart and what their parents will or won't put up with. What a difficult decision. Yet Jesus made a decision with this cross that cost Simon something, a stranger who he had had no idea he was going to be involved in this mob in this day. It's not like people were cheering him on saying, thanks for helping. This was something shameful, something you did not want to be part of or associated with. And here he's pressed into service. There are others in this story, and we don't have time to look at all of them this morning, but in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, there's a a centurion. The Bible says, and when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Well, you don't think about it, I mean, a centurion, a a battle-hard Roman soldier. You don't think of much affecting them, do you? But you might think about what this centurion probably was privy to. They were well-respected, high-ranking in the military. They had resources. They knew what was going on in the city that they were given charge over. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about his background, but what was happening to Christ during that time was very well-known. And it's not unthinkable that this centurion likely realized that Jesus Christ was... Uh, betrayed by one of his own followers, that would mean something to a centurion. They put people to death for that. Uh, He was abandoned by all of his friends, given up on by those who should have been closest to him. He was unjustly sentenced, and in fact, the judge in his trial believed that he was innocent. Boy, that starts to weigh on a person's mind after a while, doesn't it? What what is going on here? Now, and also right before this story, remember the the Pharisees and religious leaders had sent some soldiers out. We don't know that it was this centurion, of course, but had sent some soldiers out to go grab Jesus. And they end up sitting for a few minutes listening to him talk and preach. And the Bible says that all that heard him wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And those same soldiers come back and the religious leaders say, where is he? We asked you to go pick him up. And all their response, according to the scripture, was never a man spake like this man. (laughs) All we can say is we didn't bring him back, but you've never heard somebody talk like this man talked. 
interesting. He would represent more of the, the stoic. He wasn't uh, as embroiled in the events as obviously the two thieves were or pressed into the matter like Simon was. He was a little bit more uh, standing in the background, if you will. He had sort of a, a scope as to what was going on, yet the Bible says... Of course, there was darkness for three hours from noon till three, and then there was an earthquake, and the temple veil was rent. And then this centurion, and there's several centurions mentioned in the Bible, all in a positive light. The centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. Nicodemus also shows up in this story at the end in chapter 19. Later on, the Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and claim the body of Christ Now, Nicodemus first met Jesus back in John chapter 3, and it says he sort of snuck out by night. You know, he was a respected religious leader, but he wanted to know what this Jesus was about. He met him privately and in the evening. And later on in in John chapter 7, the religious leaders are gathered together having a council against Jesus, and he, he offers some input. He says, well, we don't you know, blame anybody till he's been heard first, right? And you can kind of see him sort of hedging his bets. And the religious leader's like, you're from Galilee? The Bible doesn't say anybody important's coming from Galilee, does it? And they sort of dismiss him, but you can see him trying to give his advice, sort of coming in on Jesus' side without really playing his cards, if you will. And now he shows up openly to claim the body of Jesus Christ. Imagine what an emaciated form that was. Now, if you're like me, initially I'm thinking, well, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are officiating the most useless funeral in all of history. Uh, This person is not going to be dead very long, but, of course, the scriptures have to be fulfilled, right? And they talked about Jesus, his death, his burial, uh, that he would have his grave with the wicked, uh, Jonas, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It had this effect on all these different people, different walks of life, different circumstances, different mindsets. And God seems to want to paint this picture that here is my Son, and all of humanity is on one side of the, or the other. They're either still trying to throw something in his face or they're seeing themselves for who they really are and him for who he really is and repenting and trusting in him. For the believer, his death brings us life. Paul said, for I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He goes on in Galatians 6 to say, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The cross is the dividing line. And for a Christian, his death brings us life. But there's a warning in this for the unbeliever, if I can put this in these words, his life brings death. Acts 17.31 says, because he, this is speaking of God, hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, 
whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. He died in your place on Calvary. And the fact that he rose from the dead, God says, that's the assurance to all men that I will judge them one day. And that day we see in Revelation chapter 20 before a great white throne. The Bible says books are opened up and men are judged out of those books. That's the unrighteous dead. The Bible says they go off into what it calls the second death. Christ's death is life for the believer. But his life, his resurrection, is also the certification of eternal death to those that reject him. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Bible says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. It's God speaking. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Choose life. God's saying everyone comes down on one side or the other of Jesus Christ. And it's the difference between life and death. Go to John 19. Let's uh, put a bow on this. John 19. John 19, coming down to the end of this story. He's already appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Then he appears again with Thomas there after Thomas has told the other disciples, I won't believe unless I... You know, put my finger into the the wounds in his body. That happens in John. I'm sorry, I said 19. I mean, uh, chapter 20 of John. In John chapter 20, verse 28, we see the record of Thomas believing. And then the chapter ends like this in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name. Some of the people in this story, like the thieves, they didn't have a choice about which side they were going to be crucified on, but they did have a choice about which side they would be on in terms of their belief in Christ. Simon didn't have a lot of choice in his, how he was pressed into the matter, but he did have a decision to make. The centurion had a decision to make. Nicodemus had a decision to make. And God gives all of us a decision to make. Three crosses, the man in the middle, the son of God, and all of mankind represented by one on his left hand and one on his right, and Jesus in the middle. Where do you come down? Where do we come down? Are we going to side with Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the day. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word, for the clarity of it. Thank you for the opportunity to to have it and to preach it and teach it, and Lord, to learn from it. I pray, Lord, that uh, your word would work in our hearts and our minds this morning. Lord, I pray your blessings upon your people. I thank you for their attention this morning and ask, Lord, that you just close out the remainder of this service as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.